Welcome to the next episode of the After Hours Podcast. In today's episode, me and Frankie talk to Matthew Landon about his experience with Haymarket Whiskey Bar. If you like whiskey shipped straight from the barrel, you're going to love this place. Sit back, get comfortable, and grab a cold one with the boys for another After Hours interview. How you doing, man? Good. Doing fine. Thank you. Sounds like uh, you guys are open back up now. We've been open since the end of May. Right on. Yeah, that's uh, that's how Ohio has been as well. Usually like that that May area. I know up in Michigan, I mean, they're just now starting to open stuff. So uh, I'm glad that you guys were able to open a little bit earlier. Yeah, I am too. It's good to be back to work. So let's, let's, talk, about, uh, let's talk about you. How did you get started in the industry and when did Haymarket open? So I got started in the hospitality business initially in 2007. And I first opened a coffee shop called Derby City Espresso. Derby City Espresso here in Louisville, Kentucky, in the same building where the Haymarket is located today. I really, uh, I didn't mean to per se get in the business. Uh, I just needed something to do. I had decided that my former career in public relations and translation in Europe was getting me nowhere in Kentucky. I decided to open up a third wave coffee shop, which promptly failed, I should tell you. That's wild. So how did you start in uh, public relations in a different continent and then work your way to Kentucky to open up a, a bar? It's a pretty long and complicated story. I got a degree in journalism from the University of Oregon way back 20 years ago and um, moved to Europe, got work with a, a newspaper in Milan, Italy, and I ended up staying in Europe for several years and working for a variety of large companies. Uh, I learned German. I ended up moving to Germany. I worked for companies like Deutsche Telekom and Telekom Italia Lab and General Motors European subsidiary Opel Automotive. But then after a number of years living in Europe, I decided to return to the United States my ex-wife and my then young son lived in Louisville. And after being overseas for several years, I decided to be down the street from my son. Right on. So I actually, uh, so I'm a media, I was a media communication major. So we did a lot of studies in multimedia journalism. So I was just curious, what, what is your take on how journalism is done nowadays with mainstream to local to just the whole scheme of it all? That's a pretty broad subject and probably one that I don't really have any background to comment on. I haven't practiced journalism literally since 2001. I have friends in the industry still, but it's not a real easy way to make money. I'll tell you that much. Yep. That's, I agree. <laughs> that's why, so I, I majored in it. I got my degree in it, but I'm doing stuff that relates to it, but isn't necessarily in journalism. Well, the skills that I learned getting that degree are applicable in the whiskey business. Communications is always applicable. It is, uh, sorry, I'm going to plug this laptop in. It is, uh, it's just sort of a snapshot of a life that I no longer live. Yeah. You, you've moved on to, to bigger and better things, you know? <laughs> I never meant to own a whiskey bar. I mean, it's, uh, it's shocking to me that I've been so successful in this business because it, it is pretty far removed from what I, you know, imagine doing at other points in my life. I don't regret the journalism degree. I ended up getting, while I was running the coffee shop here in Louisville and not really ever making any money, we added, I told you the coffee shop failed. So to kind of, kind of adjust for that 
failure, I added a beer license. Uh, and so from from 2007, from the autumn of 2007 until the autumn of 2011, I sold espresso and craft beer. Um, and I also went back to grad school and got a master's degree in English and used all the student loans to keep my floundering business afloat. <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, entrepreneurship takes you in some crazy directions. Well, you know, when I finished that master's degree and realized the student loan gravy train was uh, arriving at the station and that the bills were about to come due, you know, that was the moment that inspiration struck. And that was the moment I got in the whiskey business. For years, people had come to my coffee shop beer bar to see live music or an art show, and they would want to drink bourbon. This is Louisville, Kentucky, after all. I never wanted to be in the bar business because I don't really like drunks, and I never was much of one. But when that grad program ended and I realized that I now owed $80,000 in debt, I figured I had to figure out how to make money, and people, people had sort of already shown me the way. And sure enough, you know, when I did open the Haymarket that very first month, sales doubled over what we had been doing as a coffee shop beer bar. Right on. Yeah, so the whiskey bar paid off. The bet paid off. I used the whiskey bar and then paid off all the student loans. Yeah, that seems like a, a challenge that most people are facing these days when they're they're going to college and, I mean, really can't afford it with the uh, the price that tuition is and, you know, room and board and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's daunting. It's daunting. And I don't think you necessarily get real life skills out of college anymore, you know, if you ever did. You know, you have to be so focused as an individual and ready to uh, do what you need to do to get ahead in this world. You know, there's no easy path any longer if there ever was. Probably folks would be better off going to uh, some kind of trade school. That's a more practical experience in this real world. I mean, I wish I was an electrician a lot of the time. Yeah, it's it's the trade schools where if you want to get a, like a real job that has like a high demand, you go to trade school. If you want, I mean, unless it, like if you're going for engineering or nursing or one of the really higher uh, degrees, if you're going to college, it's really the the two things I learned was indirectly was that I need to be open minded about what I want to pursue, and that also I need to meet as many people and have as many good connections as possible. Because I think that's the biggest thing I got of college is just all of the, the really good connections I've got that have led me to where I'm at right now. That's a good lesson as well. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have any connections in the whiskey business with anybody from my undergraduate or from my master's program, but you know, the idea of being able to tell a narrative, to have a storyline, to um, set goals and achieve them, you know, to complete projects, all those skills that you have to use to become successful in university are absolutely applicable in this business. Right. You mentioned that, you know, you really weren't a, a fan of drunks and you're not particularly a big drinker yourself. Uh, why did you choose whiskey? Was there, was there an underlying tone for uh, dark spirits? It's Louisville, Kentucky. This is the center of the bourbon universe. And ironically, when I did open the Haymarket, there was no whiskey bar here. There was no sort of uh, whiskey library style bar. You know, there was a fine dining establishment called Bourbon's Bistro and a barbecue joint had opened about 
six months before me called the Silver Dollar. And they had a wide bourbon selection, but it was it was it was a restaurant. It it wasn't really a bar, the way you think of bars in the movies from the forties. Being, you know, I I wasn't gonna put a kitchen in. I had long been hesitant to add any significant food component to my beer coffee shop business, which I ran by myself for four and a half years. When I opened the Haymarket Whiskey Bar, I had no employees. I literally ran the place five days a week by myself. And so I was really invested in the idea of a life and flexible small business. You know, that had been the key to keeping the coffee shop beer bar running for all those years on, on next to no money. You know, it was just being an autonomous individual, individually operated enterprise. So with this is urban country. There wasn't, it wasn't here. And yet clearly in 2011, it was clear even to a non-drinker like myself that bourbon was blowing up. And so it just seemed natural and an evolution of what I had already begun as a coffee shop. And then with the addition of craft beer, the idea of being a place where buy. What was the uh, inspiration for adding craft beer to the menu with coffee? The failure of the coffee shop, the financial failure. Okay. Which happened just a few months after I I opened my place in uh, 2007. It was the compromise with alcohol. It was me saying, okay, it's clear that I'm ahead of my time with this coffee shop in this location. I have to make it a destination. And the way I'm going to do that is with entertainment programming, live music, art shows, and alcoholic beverages. People want to get drunk. They don't want to hang out in a coffee shop. Really? You know? Who wants to really hang out in a coffee shop drinking coffee? I mean, it's it's honestly, it's not, it's not like we're in Italy. And in fact, all the coffee shops in Italy serve alcohol. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and that was my real world experience is that, in fact, without the alcoholic beverages, people did not want to come to my location because I was out of the way. I was in downtown Louisville years before downtown Louisville developed. And so it, it was uh, uncomfortable for people here in Louisville to come downtown. It's a very, very provincial place. And the white flight that occurred in the 70s and 80s uh, you know, it, it, the new urbanization trend that had taken many urban American cities by storm at the beginning of the millennium was, you know, years, years behind here. It really didn't come together here for another 10 years until 2010, 2011, you know, with new hotels, with urban bourbon attractions like distilleries, new living new condos. I mean, even today in downtown Louisville, there is no shopping. I mean, it's still a, a largely incomplete reurbanization. It's a very strange local environment. I've never been here. I, I mean, I can't really put it into words. Louisville, Kentucky is a very particular place. Yeah, that's, that is what I've heard. Uh, I have a friend that goes to Louisville and he says it's, it's quite different than uh, Michigan where we're from. Not necessarily bad or good. It's just a different way of life from what he's told me. Every place is unique. I've lived all over the world. Uh, I've lived in many different states in the United States. But Louisville, Louisville kind of takes the cake. Well, that's great. 
It's a special place. I've been here 15 years now. You mentioned, you know, bourbon is at the heart of Kentucky. Um, do you think that Haymarket could work in other other places across the world or uh, maybe like New York or Toronto? Or is it something that's special and unique to Kentucky? You know, the challenge is to amass a whiskey collection like the one that I've amassed legally to legally amass that collection in those other markets starting in 2020. It's impossible. I mean, it's just impossible to do what I've done. You could start up, but you better have a lot of money. If you want to put 400, 500 whiskeys on the shelf, including dozens of hand-selected single barrels, dozens of vintage whiskeys, all the Pappy Van Winkle and antique collections and rare allocated bourbons that you have to have to be considered a top-flight whiskey bar. You know, it's, um, it's virtually impossible to do that from scratch. In 2011, it, it was slightly less impossible. The legality of opening a bar like mine, the cost, the economy of scale, you know, honestly, I wouldn't open it anywhere else. I mean, not to say I wouldn't open a bar somewhere else, but no, nah, the Haymarket is tailor-made for Louisville, Kentucky, and just I don't think it would be viable most other places. There's, you know, we sell whiskey that costs between six and two hundred dollars, and people come from all over the world to my bar. It's not uncommon to have guests that spend three, four hundred dollars on whiskey be it by the drink or by the bottle, because we're duly licensed in this jurisdiction and we act as both a bar and a liquor store. Number one, I don't think that's legal in most states. And that's part of the magic of this place is people come and they taste things and then they buy bottles. Also in Kentucky, we have the vintage whiskey law, which is uh, only legal in a handful of uh, municipalities around America. And this law allows us to buy vintage whiskey, older whiskeys, whiskeys that are no longer in district, uh, and buy them from private sources and then legally sell them on our bar. Uh, I don't think that's legal most places. You've got to buy everything from a distributor because the way the liquor laws operate, even in 2020 and, and the three-tier system, which states that retailers can only buy from distributors. They can't buy directly from producers. And they can't buy from private individuals, even if it's a, a whiskey that or a bottle of spirit that is not even available from the distributor. You know, you're supposed to be able to show a receipt for that. It's pretty unique that you guys are able to serve whiskey as a bar, but then also sell bottles of a drink. I've never heard of anything like that. That's certainly not a thing that we can do here. <laughs> not that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a great strategic advantage. You know, I mean... Licensing's affordable here. I mean, honestly, I mean, um, opening a bar in many other places is just a, it's a daunting task. I mean, liquor licenses typically are six figures, not in Kentucky, not in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> you know, and then having this steady stream of, of bourbon tourism, people coming from all over the world to visit the distilleries. And then they need a nightlife. You know, they want to go out in the evening. You visit the distilleries in the daytime, and then you go out to whiskey bars at night. And you try things that you've never seen before, and you can't possibly find back home. It's very fertile ground for the Haymarket to succeed. And even in this post-pandemic world that's coming, bourbon tourism will come back sooner, I think, than a lot of other things, because bourbon tourism 
by its nature, uh, you can socially distance and drive to different distilleries and take different small group distillery tours where you can largely stand apart from the other people on the tour. Kentucky hasn't been a COVID hotspot so far. Uh, we've had pretty good leadership here. And, uh, you know, if that holds true and Kentucky is one of those top 10 states in the union with the least amount of COVID, you know, people are going to feel safer coming, coming and traveling here. Also, we're very centrally located. We are basically a three-hour flight from everywhere in America east of the Rockies. We're a five-hour drive from places as uh, distant, you know, we have St. Louis, Chicago, Indianapolis, Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, Knoxville, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, and I believe even Memphis, Tennessee, all in a five-hour circle by driving. And there'll be more people driving now than flying for the next year or two. We've already begun to see the return of to Louisville, and it's mostly people driving. They're road tripping. They're going on road trips, bopping in and out of different towns, checking it out. Spending a day here or a day there. So what's the furthest uh, guest you've ever had someone come from? I've had guests from as far away as China, Japan, Scotland, Brazil. I don't know by mileage. It's probably China. Here, it's on the other side of the earth. <laughs> Australia. We've had Aussies in here. Lots of Europeans. You know, people love bourbon whiskey. Bourbon is cool. Bourbon is the American spirit. It's one of the purest expressions of Americanism. And even when there's a, a, an administration, even when our politics cause conflicts with other parts of the world, they still admire the Americans. And you can, you know, so drinking American whiskey is a way, like wearing Levi's or listening to rock and roll, you know, it's a way to connect with the best principles of the United States even if you can't stand their politics. You know, and whiskey is a, a largely exported beverage. Jack Daniels is the number two whiskey drunk in the world, and that's owned by a company based here in Louisville. Yeah, that, that is great when you can uh, have a, a drink, you know, that you can not worry about politics or any of that. You just set all that aside, just grab a drink with people from all over the place. That's really a cool experience to be able to have. So I actually had a question. I was just, you know, I never wanted to own a bar. That's a, the revelation of owning a bar after never wanting to own a bar is to see how alcohol, how drinking, how socializing brings so diverse people together. I mean, you can literally get, you know, uh, Bernie bro in the same room as a Trump MAGA hat wearing dude with a BLM supporter. You know, I mean, you can do that. And over whiskey, they're going to find a way to get along at least for those 10 minutes. You know, it's, it's, I've seen this happen over and over. Kentucky is a very red state. I have clients of every stripe imaginable and whiskey kind of brings people together uh, and, rough uh, softens off the rough edges yeah i mean i've had many uh great experiences you know just meeting people for the first time or catching up with an old friend uh, you know through alcoholic beverages whether that be you know at you know a bonfire or you know at a bar and it really is one of the great connectors in society so i think you know having a whiskey bar that is able to 
stock, you know, 500 whiskeys, there's something there for everybody to enjoy. And, you know, like you said, they're, they're going to make the best of it for at least 10 minutes of that night. <laughs> yeah. So how many whiskeys do you actually have behind the shelves? We're probably at about 460 bottles today. We're a little bit down. You know, there's uh, it's been slower. And so some things haven't been restocked. We're kind of trying to manage inventory a little more carefully and sell more Instead of restocking everything immediately when it goes out of stock, try to sell through some of the, the open inventory. Right. And I saw before that you guys are one of the few places that imports barrels of spirits um, directly to the bar. What is that process like? The distilleries 10 years ago really wanted to try to raise their profile as bespoke, having bespoke products. And so they started these private barrel programs where individuals working with a liquor store or bar groups would come and visit the distillery, tour the distillery, and then be given the opportunity to buy an entire cask of whiskey that they would hand select. And then the distillery would bottle it exclusively for that bar and you would bring the inventory in. So that's how I got started doing it. Uh, the first barrel I ever selected was a Four Roses. I've now selected more than 50 barrels over the years um, since 2013. So I do on average um, seven or eight a year, maybe. No, let's see, seven years. Yeah, I've been in business now as the whiskey bar. I started picking barrels seven years ago. I've picked about 50. So on average, we, we were picking about one barrel of whiskey every two months. Now, the volume on a barrel of whiskey is dependent on how much whiskey is in the barrel. But typically, you're talking about um, an, a six to $12,000 purchase. And between 60 and 180 bottles of whiskey. And that went really well for many, many years. Um, and like I said, we kind of became known for this, for picking good barrels, although they're all pretty good. But people would come here, you know, and buy bottles of our barrels um, out of our little liquor store boutique cabinets take them home and uh, sometimes they even come up we see them once in a while they come up on the secondary market uh at three times the price that they were originally purchased from and that's kind of cool to see that your your hat has gone up in value that your name has got some value out there in the collectible market is there a difference in taste there there are there are large differences of taste of course yes every barrel is unique Every barrel of whiskey is like its own fingerprint. So different distilleries, different age whiskeys, different whiskeys at different proofs. So the level of alcohol by volume, they're all going to have unique flavor characteristics. Right. So if you go to a distillery and you try something there, is the taste uh, significantly different than if you would go to a store and purchase that bottle? Uh, so there, I'm, I'm not sure if I, I'm understanding the context of the question. I mean, if I just, yes, the barrel, the individual single barrels taste different than the average product in a liquor store. 
Yes. The answer to that is yes. If you're asking if the bourbon tastes different when you taste it in the barrel and then three months later when you get the bottles, that depends on what proof you tasted the bourbon at when it was in the barrel. Did you taste it at barrel strength? And what proof the whiskey is bottled at? Also, any filtration methods can affect. So, yeah, they can taste different when you finally get them. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, I never, I never knew that. So I had a, a question that sparked some curiosity. Earlier on in the podcast, you mentioned that it kind of sounded like you had a past experience with drunks and you're not liking when people got get a little too drunk. Uh, so I was just wondering if you have any interesting stories from the past at Haymarket where you had to deal with uh, someone that just maybe drank a little too much. Uh, you know, I mean, there's always those stories, uh, in the bar where you have to, you have to escort somebody out and put them in a cab. Um, you know, but I personally don't have any, any great stories about it. I just, you know, I, I was a deadhead when I was a kid growing up and, you know, in being a deadhead, being kind of a hippie in the, in the, uh, you know, late nineties, it just you just didn't really there wasn't a lot of alcohol around you know it, people were into smoking pot and taking mushrooms and stuff and you know not not drinking bourbon or fifths of vodka you know so that's where sort of my I don't like alcohol that's where this idea I got it from um, it honestly wasn't that valid because now having worked in the industry I have a much more nuanced view it's not just this sort of black and white. I don't like drunk people because actually drunk people can be really fun to hang out with and it can be really fun to be drunk, which when I started in the business, I didn't really see it that way. It's much more nuanced than, than, than what I thought it was going to be like. I never imagined it would be as nuanced, honestly. Um, but no, I don't really have any particular individual stories about one, one guy. That's probably for the best then. <laughs> so like, what's like, do you have, what's your favorite thing about running Haymarket? You know, the freedom it gives me. Honestly, I just love being my own boss more than anything. I love being self-sufficient and self-reliant. Um, that for me is the biggest thrill of running the bar. You know, it's, it's plenty of work, but it's work spent on my own behalf. And the rewards that I reap, you know, are only really the limits of where uh, my own imagination, you know I mean? And it's been quite, quite profitable for me and, and it's changed the way I live. It's changed my life. And, um, you know, that, that's probably number one. And then number two are the guests because with, without people coming to you, there is no bar. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the just the, the number of amazing people I've shared the bar room with, either serving them drinks or sitting on the other side of the bar while somebody bartends and I'm just there as the host, you know, that, that overall, those compounding experiences day in and day out are, are phenomenal, you know, because you have a chance with every person who comes in the door to, to, to make their day, to, to make that moment, you know, that person's moment for the whole day, the, the highlight, you got that opportunity. And you do it, you know, I mean, when you do it and you see people's eyes light up and you talk to them about the whiskey or you make them a fabulous cocktail uh, or you just, you know, or you just, um, 
I mean, especially now with people having not socialized for months, people are hungry to just talk to a stranger. You know, I mean, they're kind of like, I just want to sit in a bar and have a meaningless chat about the weather and or drink a couple of whiskeys. And uh, that's an amazing feeling when, when you know that you've, you've made somebody's afternoon or you've made their day. And you hope, of course, that they take that with them. And we have customers that come back every year. They're either business travelers or they visit Kentucky. They drive through Kentucky annually on their way to some other destination. And they literally make it a point to come and see how we are doing. You know, like they feel like they're invested in the room itself. They want to see what's changed. They want to see it grow. I mean, so many people in the last month have been like, I'm so glad you're open again. And uh, when we tell them that we're not planning on closing again, uh, they're very happy. You know, and that gives me a lot of personal satisfaction as well. Absolutely. And it's pretty awesome that every person that comes through your doors, um, they've been impacted by either you or um, the staff there or the alcohol that you provide. Are you a firm believer that there is a whiskey for everybody? No, no. Some people don't like whiskey. Okay. That's a good answer. You know, yeah. we, don't, we don't try to force them. Into it. We want people, I believe there's a drink for everybody and that I can serve that drink to you. But no, uh, if you prefer a cocktail or if you prefer a vodka or if you prefer a soft drink or a juice, you know, it's, it's, I don't think there's a whiskey for everybody. You're not born a whiskey drinker. You've got to acquire the taste. And if somebody's not willing to drink the whiskey that's necessary to kind of learn to taste the whiskey, then, mm -hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. How is your uh, flavor profile advanced since opening, you know, Whiskey Haymarket and being exposed to hundreds of new whiskeys? My tastes have changed pretty dramatically over the years. I've drank a lot of more whiskey now than I did in the beginning to, to become – who we are today, I had to drink a lot of whiskey yesterday. Um, I, I typically go for more proof whiskeys now. It's really popular with many drinkers to drink really high proof whiskey straight from the barrel, unfiltered, uh, no water added back to it. Don't drink it on the rocks. Drink it neat. And actually, um, I prefer whiskeys under 100 proof. Uh, and I often prefer them on a big piece of ice because um, I drink less than I did at the beginning. And because, you know, when I first got in the bar business, I kind of got seduced by alcohol and I kind of became a bit of a drinker myself. However, you know, I've now been selling alcohol, high proof alcoholic spirits for eight years. And I've seen many people in my industry um, lose their shit, so to speak. You know, I've seen suicides. I've seen drug addiction. I've seen alcoholism. Uh, I've seen people lose their businesses because they couldn't make responsible choices. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty careful with how I, I approach alcohol because I want to keep my business going because it pays for me to go scuba diving. And... Um, so I mostly drink lower proof whiskeys these days. I like vintage whiskey flavor profiles quite a bit. So whiskeys from the 1960s and the 1970s. Whereas when I first got started, I, I was drinking everything. Now I'm a little more picky. Right. 
I mean, that, that happens over time where you figure out what you start to like more and you really um, don't have to experiment as much now that you have a more refined uh, definition for what you like. Obviously, you can still always you know grow and expand, but it seems like right now you're at a pretty happy medium. People ask me what my favorite whiskey is all the time, and I do tell them it's the one that I've yet to try because I am waiting for that next big surprise, something that I that's unexpected. <laughs> I love that answer. I have not. Yeah. I have not heard that from any of our previous guests or even like bar owners. Um, that's that's awesome. I, I feel that same way actually. I'm always I'm always ready for the next drink. You know. I know what I like, but I'm still ready to be surprised. I don't want to close the door quite yet. You know, I feel that's always. Um, as I've gotten older, I've kind of done that a little bit with my musical tastes, and I see that it is a little bit self-limiting. You mentioned you were a deadhead before. So, what kind of music? Um, do you like for modern artists? Um, I don't even know what you would consider modern. I, I honestly don't really listen to modern music. Pretty much everything I listen to is from the last century. Okay. I was just wondering. I, I listen to a lot of dead people, you know, uh, lots of old blues and jazz artists who are no longer on earth. I guess I like, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of somebody I, modern who's making music now that really gets me going. I like Gnarls Barkley. That's sort of, but he hasn't made anything in a while, has he? Gnarls Barkley was cool. Um, yeah, he's kind of, I think he got out of the game. Uh, but he was modern like five years ago, I guess. Uh, yeah, no, there's honestly, like, I really don't listen to modern music. And which, you know, I'm probably missing out on stuff. That's what I'm saying is, I don't want to have that same attitude towards whiskey. Because I don't listen to modern music. I pretty much don't know anything about it. I'm pretty much like that old guy who's like, get off my lawn. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to make some great art out there. There's got to be some good art out there. Uh, I guess Kanye West. Is my son really likes Kanye West. Um, but pretty much if my son listens to it, I don't. You know, it's, it's a generational thing. Do you hear he's running for president now? I think that's a joke. He, it, it was Twitter official. <laughs> Yeah, that's well. I don't really, I don't believe in Twitter. Twitter, I don't do Twitter. I, that's probably a good thing not to believe that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I'm pretty outside that, that reality. I don't live in that world. I did hear that, but uh, I, I find it hard to take seriously. Yeah. No, yeah. Twitter is is quite the the platform, but outside of Twitter, so you you have a lot of interest in whiskey. Have you really explored a lot outside of whiskey and in wine or beer? Or other liquors? Well, I was in the craft beer business for a long time. So, yeah, I've, I've drank plenty of beer. I don't know much about wine. I've never really been interested in it. Um, I suppose if I lived somewhere. When I lived in Italy, you know, the, the lesson that I learned was just order the table wine, whatever the restaurant was serving, whatever. They're not a fancy bottle. You know, there's a million bottles. They're all marketed to be great. They cost this. They cost that. Just order the table wine. No, my, my interests uh, in spirits are not – I'm not very knowledgeable about anything other than whiskey. Um, beer I know a fair fair amount about, but these days I mostly just drink Scheinerbach and Coors Banquet. My beer tastes have really changed. I'm not really actually – don't like craft beer as much as I did 20 years ago. You know, I lived in Oregon. I went to the University of Oregon. So I was drinking craft beer. I was drinking IPAs. Starting in the 90s, you know, I was drinking Sierra Nevada at Grateful Dead shows in 1991. So I've been drinking craft, you know, quote unquote craft beer for nearly 30 years now. 
And it just, it, it just, uh, I feel like I've kind of seen everything under the sun. Sure, I mean there are milkshake flavored beers now and grapefruit flavored beers now, and but I kind of, you know, I got old and fuddy duddy. I just feel like beer should sort of taste like beer. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to have a uh, an upside down cheesecake beer, <laughs> or for that matter, an upside down cheesecake whiskey. Whiskey, straight whiskey here in Kentucky, it sort of is what it is. Um, form fills fills the content, and you know you can have variety within a narrow range, but some things you don't have to you know constantly reinvent. Yeah, and you mentioned you were drinking craft beers thirty years ago. Is that really you know the start of craft beers? Like when did it start to get big in your opinion? Sierra Nevada just celebrated its 40th anniversary. Um, Anchor Brewing, run by the Fritz Maytag, was uh, one of the very first. They made a beer called Anchor Steam. Jimmy Carter was president. That was when the law was changed and allowed for home brewing, which had been illegal in America since Prohibition. So that you know, so 1976 is sort of Jimmy Carter's what president 76 to 80. So that's the beginning. They, yeah, I think I think by you know so 20 years after it became legal, you had really the beginnings of nationwide branded alternatives to Budweiser and Miller and Coors. So yeah, you know when I was a kid, it was pretty big, but then it got bigger. I mean, the heyday is now. Honestly, I mean, there's more breweries and brew pubs and styles of beer than ever before. This is peak beer right now. Probably COVID is, is in fact, where it starts, you know, numbers start going down because a bunch of them won't survive. They'd already been oversaturated for a minute or two, but, but you know, it's never really going away again either. You know, there'll always be infinite beer styles and infinite beer brands now. You will always be able to go into a liquor store and choose from one of a thousand different six-packs. You know, that's never going to go away. Uh, now it's just going to be, you know, survival of the fittest. Yeah. And you mentioned before that you went scuba diving and that you were a deadhead and that you moved to Germany and learned German while abroad. Um, those are all pretty crazy things. What would you say is the most thrill-seeking thing you've ever done? I jumped out of an airplane before. That was pretty cool. Ah. <laughs> It's funny. There's always the cliches whenever we ask a, that kind of question, people always say, oh, I don't know. I mean, like, I've never jumped out of an airplane, but you you are that one guy who has done that. <laughs> that's awesome. So I, I, I'm really into scuba diving, but that's a very relaxing sort of, it's not exactly thrill-seeking, although it has moments that are thrilling. You know, I've scuba dived hundreds of times. I'm a dive master. I own all my own equipment. My dream retirement package includes a a beach house and a boat and the ability to just go out diving whenever I want. Um, but for absolute thrilling, I mean, yeah, you know, jumping out of an airplane was pretty freaking thrilling. <laughs> what made you want to do that? I did it for charity. Um, I'd never done it. And I, a local charity was basically, you know, if you donated X hundreds of dollars to the charity, you got to go, go, jump out of an airplane and I just thought it was a great cause and why not go grab that experience you know 
Uh, my father had jumped out of an airplane. He told the story about jumping out of an airplane and then he broke his leg on the landing. Oof. And I'd always remembered that story as a kid. And so I felt sort of like, well, I should try it as well. Let's see what happens. <laughs> you know. And I didn't break my leg, unlike Pops. That would probably deter most people from ever getting in an airplane. But I like your mentality, you know, just uh, I'll try it, give it a go for myself and we'll see where we go. You know, did your dad tell you to break a leg? before? Jo- he didn't. Uh, he didn't know. I didn't okay. tell him. I didn't <laughs> tell him I was going till after. I- That's probably for the best. I didn't want to ruffle his feathers. <laughs> so, so when you went scuba diving, where did you go for that? Did you go out in the ocean or out into one of those rivers or where did you go for that? Um, so I got certified to be an open water diver, which is, uh, the ability to dive to, I think it's, um, 20 meters, which is about 60 feet. Um, and I did that in Thailand, uh, in the Aden Sea, I believe it's the ocean off the coast of Thailand. And then I've dove many other places over the years. Um, exclusively in the in the sea. Uh, I've never really dove in fresh water. I only dive in salt water so far. And um, so, yeah, but I've been to places like Cuba and Mexico, um, the Turks and Caicos Islands and Bonaire in the Caribbean, Thailand, South Africa, Israel. Yeah, it sounds like you've been all over the place. If you could recommend one place for uh, someone to go on a vacation, what would it be? You know, it depends what you want out of your vacation, but one good general all-around vacation destination is Thailand. They've got it all. They've got jungles. They've got beaches. They've got scuba diving. They've got Buddhism. They've got archaeological sites. They've got great food. It's cheap. They're super friendly. It's a Buddhist country, so there's no, like, they just love everybody, you know, and um, Thailand's a great place for vacation, for sure. But you got to go for like two or three weeks at a time. It's not good for like a weekend vacation. It's too far away. Right. I wouldn't go there unless I had at least 20 days, you know. But if you got 20 days and you're like, where do I go? I got 20 days and I want to live like a king on, you know, 100, 150 bucks a day. This is the vacation of my lifetime with airfare, and you know I want to. I'm going to spend four or five thousand bucks and go on a nice vacation. Thailand's a pretty good place to do it. That's what I've heard. I've heard it's very affordable for all of the luxuries that you get to have there. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. I've I've been wanting to go there just because, like you said, you know you can live like a king for uh, a reasonable amount. So I can't wait. I mean, I didn't live like a king when I was there. I lived sort of on the lowdown because. But I mean, it's amazing. Like, I mean, you're talking about getting um, a meal for a dollar or two dollars. Drinks are a dollar. Uh, lodging is ten dollars at a hostel or you know, in like a in a in a not so fancy place. So I mean, like a thirty dollar hotel is very luxurious there. Um, you know, a, a twenty dollar meal is that's uh, like you can eat really well because um, basic food stuffs might be. You know, a meal that in the United States would be $10 is a dollar. You can go to any number of roadside food vendors that make the best pad thai and the best tom yum and the best curry that you've ever had in your life. And it's 
you know, it's it's a buck, and you're sitting on the street in a, on a plastic stool. But the ambiance is phenomenal. All that food sounds so good. <laughs> I I just can't wait. Oh man, I'm getting hungry myself. <laughs> Same here. Speaking of food, do you have any special hangover recipe? Sure don't. I guess, well, you know, what I eat when I'm hungover, I like to eat chicken soup and potato salad. It's not a recipe, but it's a good one, too. Right. A little bit of comfort food the next morning. I feel that. Chicken soup, that's definitely better. I've never had potato salad before for hangover food. I'll have to try that one out. I like the starch. There's the, the starch from the potatoes, and then there's the mayonnaise. I find that it kind of it replenishes me. Makes sense. Nothing spicy. Oh, nothing spicy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a. I, I love hot food. Like anything hot, I will try it. So. When you're hungover. Oh, anytime. Yeah, hungover at night, whatever. Any- yeah. Yeah, we actually just had some food earlier. Yeah, we actually just had some food earlier. He was covering his food and uh, talk about hot sauce. So, <laughs> oh my, Diablo sauce actually. <laughs> right, Diablo sauce. Diablo. If you were not operating Haymarket, what do you think you'd be doing right now? If I closed Haymarket for whatever crazy reason, which I won't do, but um, I would actually move to Israel and get my citizenship there and spend six months learning how to speak Hebrew. Uh, and then when I finished that, I would uh, probably spend six months traveling around the world, take a very long, extended world vacation, uh, spend a month or two in India. I would really like to go to my ancestral home um, in Ukraine and see where my, my relatives came from when they before they immigrated to the United States. And I'd like to visit some of my favorite cities of the world. I'd love to go back to Berlin and Amsterdam. You know, so yeah, that's uh, that's probably if for some reason I wasn't doing Haymarket, that's what I would do. Interesting. I love that. Is there any reason that you'd want to pick up Hebrew and visit Israel? Because you already you already know German and English. Um, are you just are you a big fan of learning new languages? You know, I, I I'm Jewish and I. But I wasn't really very Jewish growing up, and most of my adult life I wasn't. And then, you know, in the last uh, five years or so, I've decided that I'm, I'm curious about my heritage. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not super religious per se, um, but I, I'm very interested in my heritage, and I find it fascinating that it's just coincidence that I happen to be alive for the first, you know, look, the Jews haven't had a state in Israel since the Romans, since, you know, for nearly 2,000 years. And now, my lifetime, they have a state. And uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated by the culture, and I'm fascinated by the idea that, you know, I, I maybe have an obligation to, to be a part of that. Um, so that's really what I want to want. Why I want to get my citizenship there. Also, my vote is worth a lot more there. It's a small country, only eight million people, and so my vote and my you know my work there could could have a greater impact perhaps than here in the United States. 
you know, my vote for president in Kentucky ain't, ain't worth much. That's fair. Very interesting. And what is something that you failed at and then you've later overcome? And what are what is the, the learning experience that came along with it? Uh, so I used to hate swimming in the ocean. I used to uh, have panic attacks when I would swim in the ocean because I would swallow salt water and lose my breath and uh, a wave would crash or something. And I just, I was very timid around swimming in the sea. I, I got a snorkel. <laughs> I got a snorkel and a pair of goggles. So, um, you know, now I had, I had no water in my eyes bothering me, no salt water. And, uh, you know, I could breathe fresh air and not get hit by waves. And even if I did get hit by a wave, I could, you know, I could then go back to the fresh air without panic attack. And that was scuba diving. That was sort of the why I wanted to learn how to scuba dive because I had this sort of fear of the ocean. And uh, that had been caused by numerous episodes of, of swimming out, you know, in Italy, in the Mediterranean, see a beautiful beach scene and you, know, you want to go swimming. And then the next thing you know, a big wave crashes and all of a sudden you're you're drowning and you're gasping for air. It's not very much fun. So <laughs> sounds pretty terrifying. <laughs> and for anybody and for anybody that is looking to join the industry and maybe even open like their own bar or whiskey bar, what is some advice that you would give them? You want to make a million bucks in the whiskey business? Start with a million bucks. <laughs> Don't do what I, do. I mean, the odds of me doing what I did are a million to one. There were so many inflection points where I could have failed or I could have walked away, you know, during the years when I wasn't making any money, when it was a coffee shop and the coffee shop failed, I could have walked away. Then I added beer, got myself into even more debt. You know, I could have walked away and not gotten in the whiskey business. You know, it's a very challenging industry. Uh, the advice for anybody in the booze business is to not – don't become enamored of free booze. You know, don't become enamored of the big companies, the big distilling companies that are going to want to take you out and take you to the party and get you drunk to make a good impression on you so you sell more of their product. You know, hold that stuff at arm's length. That's an illusion. That's not the real business, you know, and it's very easy to get into that party mode where you're like, oh, everything's paid for by the brands, um, you know, and then you're obligated to, to the brands. I don't like really being in debt. I don't really like being obligated to people. I mean, I like doing things for people. I like being a good person, but I don't like feeling that I owe people something because they did something for me. So I, there's a lot of money spent in the industry to win the hearts and minds of the bartenders and the bar managers, you know, junkets, free this, baseball caps, t-shirts, you know, including free trips, plane tickets, vacations, you know, come to our distillery in Mexico and we'll put you up for four days in our hacienda. You know, but it's it's a it's a bit of an illusion. That's a unique perspective. I've I've heard of these manipulative tactics before, but uh, it's the first time we've had someone on the show bring it 
bring it to the forefront. And um, yeah, it's, that's very strange. At what, what point do brands start approaching you um, to this capacity with incentives and stuff like that? If you don't mind me asking. I mean, I think that as an individual bartender, brands um, are always, they don't really, you know, they're always reaching out in a general way. Um, but then, yes, I mean, I think it's social media when you have X amount of followers, when you become a, a, you know, it's like with chefs, like when did Anthony Bourdain just stop being a cook? You know, why did that guy get a TV show? I mean, thank God he did. It's a fascinating show. He's a cool guy. But like, when did he go from being just another schmuck in a New York kitchen doing cocaine to, you know, being Anthony Bourdain? There's that moment in the bar business for bartenders where you go from being just some schmuck bartending to getting known by the clique, the insiders, you know, the golden 100. And and there's always a golden 100 in your town, you know. There's always because, you know, it's the it's, – yeah, it's how much are you selling? How well are you promoting? And um, but it's very vapid, and just as quickly as you hit the top ten, you're you're back you're back in the gutter. I mean, you know, brands treat bartenders like bartenders treat brands. Any individual brand on the back bar hypothetically is replaceable tomorrow, and that's exactly how they treat bartenders. That's how the marketing teams treat you. So. There's an enormous pressure to get to the top of the game and then to stay relevant. And it's but it's a losing value because really they're always going to be looking for the new thing. You know, they don't really want the 20-year veteran. You know, the worldly wise, slightly cynical, crudmudgeony guy. Nobody wants that guy. They want the young, beautiful, hot cocktail bartender. Nobody lasts forever. And uh, as soon as you, you know, one of the lessons I learned having gone through the complete cycle of being the hot thing and then falling out and not being the hot thing um, is that you have to, you know, that's, that's an illusion because what's really going on is you have to be persistent and you have to be consistent um, with your guests, not with the brands. The only people that really matter is the individual in front of you right now. It's not the next bar- bartending contest. It's not getting invited to Camp Runamuck. It's not being on TV on the morning show making a cocktail. Those are all cool things in of themselves. But the reality of being a bar owner or a bar manager or a bartender is it's all about each experience. Now, you can't win them all. That's also a given. You're not going to please everybody, but you've got to try. <laughs> and when you don't try, you know, you, you you can also accept that. You know, that's like called mental health days. You know, like you, some days you don't want to go to work, right? That's for everybody. But when it comes to the scene within the bartending scene, my advice to people is to dip your toe, but, but don't – don't jump in head first because the bartending scene, I think, does more damage than uh, than many things in the industry. Proceed with caution. Proceed with caution because you're probably going to be drinking, and your, you know, your mental faculties will be uh, will be 
will be influenced by the alcohol and by the gimmicks and the mm. freebies. You know, and everybody's going to be your best friend. And they're going to tell you, man, bar world is forever. You know, yeah. come as a friend, leave as family. These, these cliches, you know, that are bar family. It's not a bar family. They're not, they're not your fucking family. They're people you work with. You know, and if they work for the distillery and you work in the bar, you're playing at different levels in the three-dimensional chess game of life. That's my own experience. You know, I just, I think I see a lot of be seduced by the coolness of the click of those golden 100 in whatever city they're in. And uh, it doesn't always end so well. Right. On a brighter note, though. How did Haymarket get its name? So Haymarket is named after an actual location across the street from where the bar is today. Uh, It's a historic location where the first Union Station in Louisville, Kentucky, was constructed in the wake of the Civil War. And the market that grew around that train station became the city's central market so that when they demolished that original Union Station and moved to a bigger facility several blocks away, they turned the site, the location of the former train station, into what became the Hay Market, which was um, several city blocks of tin-roofed stalls where you could go down and get produce or livestock or leather or whiskey or tobacco and it was ringed by commercial buildings. There were bars and hotels and brothels surrounding the market. And people would come to the hay market from rural, rural places with their handmade goods and bring them to the market in the city. Of course, there's also the hay market affair. Uh, I'm originally from Chicago. And the hay market affair is a very famous anarchist bombing where uh, some anarchists threw bombs at the police as a part of the early labor movement in the 1880s, late 1880s. So it's also a nod to my Chicago heritage, and it's also a nod to the idea that the only way to be free in your labor is to labor for yourself. So it kind of sounds like the Haymarket has quite a, a large history, and with history... There tends to occasionally be ghost stories. And I was wondering if you knew of any ghost stories about Haymarket. Well, you know, this building was built, uh, the building the bar is located in was built in the 1880s. And um, while I've never really felt the presence of the supernatural, you know, you think about the number of lives that have been lived in this building. And, you know, you never know. You, it's just... It's only up to your imagination. And I do have a pretty wild imagination, so I'll take that as a yes, it's haunted. I've been outside and the chimes of the uh, wind chime, and it's been pretty damn spooky when I've had one too many bourbons, and it's after hours, and the place is all off, and I'm just sitting here waiting to sober up to drive myself home. Yeah. And as we start to wrap up here, uh, we like to we like to ask some fun, goofy questions like ghost stories. Uh, you mentioned that you're from Chicago. What is your favorite hometown restaurant? Favorite hometown, individual hometown restaurant? Yep. That's a tough one. I like a lot of restaurants in Chicago. 
probably I have to give you a short list. I can't just give you one. Are you okay with that? Oh, that's perfectly fine. All right. So Delicatessen, Eleven City Diner or Manny's, Pizzeria, Lou Malinati's, Hot Dogs, Wiener Circle. And then for general comfort food, there's a place called the Continental that I really love. It's out by my parents' house in the suburbs. And it's a Greek guy, and he's got like a 16-page menu, and it's got everything you've ever wanted on it. Damn. Does that include deep dish pizza? No, it doesn't have deep dish pizza. But he has sour cabbage soup and mushroom barley soup. So for me, it's a home run. That sounds good. And they, you just brought it up, Dan. Uh, Chicago deep dish style pizza is. Can you find that anywhere else in the world, or is that only home to Chicago? It, it's pretty much only Chicago. Everywhere I've ever gone outside of Chicago and tried to have a Chicago style deep dish pizza experience, it is. It is really let me down. Now Arizona has a Lou Malinati's because there's so many Chicagoans that have move to Arizona. Hmm. So I've heard you can go to Phoenix, Arizona or Tempe, whichever whichever town it's in there. And in Arizona, you can have a Chicago deep dish pizza. But no, there's no deep dish pizza in Louisville and there's no delicatessen in Louisville and there's no continental with mushroom barley and sweet and sour cabbage soup in Louisville. It's a, it's a damn shame. <laughs> and you mentioned that you've been all around the U.S. and the world. What is – where do you take most of your influence from or is it a good little mix of everything? You know, it all starts with my parents who raised me to be curious. They took me to Australia when I was six years old. Uh, my parents – my father got work in Australia when I was six and so we moved halfway around the world. And that, you know, for me was um, – that's the archetypical fundamental experience is that as a very young developing child – to go somewhere different and see that, you know, uh, the world is a big place and it's very diverse and people speak funny over here. They speak different. They, they eat different foods and, you know, that, that, you know, so I think it, it, I take the most influence from my parents who taught me to be, you know, open-minded and, and open to experiences and willing to, to be flexible and to uh, try to be good and, you know, they taught me a good work ethic and to have a, a moral and ethical character. Um, that it's not about the dollar. What you do isn't who you are. You are you are more than just your job and more than just your possessions and the things you have. So I'm very grateful for her for them. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like they're great role models and uh, they have a way of thinking that is different than the societal norm when it comes to uh, being your own person, experiencing life outside of work and uh, monetary value isn't everything. So uh, we really appreciate having you on the show. And um, if you have any socials, where should people check you out? You can find me on, uh, well, you can't find me, but you can find the bar, Haymarket Whiskey Bar on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Haymarket Whiskey Bar. Or Facebook.com slash The Haymarket Whiskey Bar. We've got both. Instagram, you can find us at uh, Haymarket Whiskey Bar. And then you can find us in real life 
in Louisville, Kentucky at 331 East Market Street. We're open seven days a week, and we absolutely want to encourage anybody out there who's listening, come to Kentucky and see it for yourself. Oh, yeah, I know. I know we are when uh, when things are when we're a little less busy here and it's not as hectic. Definitely got to stop by. So we're looking forward to it in the years to come. It, it, it's, a, it's a great place in America. You know, uh, it's got a very unique character. It's a very old, old place in America. That's not on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being on, man. All right, After Hours Nation, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you'd like to stay updated, you can check out our site at afterhourscast.com. Don't forget to tune in next Tuesday morning for our next episode. After Hours Nation, stay thirsty, my friends.